0: before we start the show we wanted to let you know that the state of javascript 2023 survey is live there is a which programming related podcast do you listen to question so if you love podrocket we'd appreciate a vote there a link to the survey is in the show notes all right on to the show
1: Happy Friday developers, today is December 15th, 2023, and welcome back to our roundup episode where you can catch up on the episodes you missed and get a quick rundown of the past two weeks. So let's get started. First up, we had React Miami creator and co-organizer Michelle Bakels on to talk about how she leveraged the Vercel stack to easily and quickly ramp up the creation of React Miami's website. Here, she talks about the key motivators that she had for the conference that Next.js met.
0: What are the like key motivators that you're paying attention to when you're building the stack and you're building the React Miami conference website, your template choices and stuff? like What were you focusing on? Was it like speed?
2: There's a lot of things. So first of all, the resources for Next.js are prolific. Like There's an incredible amount of information about Next.js online. A lot of people have built wild things with Next.js. So when I'm picking something and I'm pretty much the only developer on this project, right, working in this repo alone, I don't have a senior developer, somebody next to me that I can like, hey, how do you do this? Like I'm stuck on this or whatever. Like I always have to debug everything alone. And so when you pick something that is really well documented and that there's a lot of information on Stack Overflow or blog posts or whatever, I know whatever I'm trying to do, someone's done it or they've done something 10 times harder, so I'm going to be able to find that information online and it'll help me move along also." I don't want to like underappreciate here the support of Next.js team as far as like frameworks go. It's like almost a joke on Twitter if you mention Next.js, you're going to end up like having a devrel from Vercel or somebody from the Next.js team like reach out to you or try and help you with your problem and that is really beneficial. And there's just not a lot of frameworks that can do that or support that and it definitely gave Next.js an edge for me. It's just that support.
0: That was a really great insight, because I'm sure a lot of people can say, of course, Michelle, you need to move fast. You need to get this conference going. But being the one custodian of the project, this was a good choice for that in the stack that we're about to get into. So that was a great motivator to hear. You mentioned the Vercel Virtual event Starter Kit. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that is, why it's so great, why you chose it?
2: So... Vercel hosts just like a whole library of free templates to get you started on all kinds of projects. I think it's really smart. There's a lot of people who want to start a blog or an e-commerce website, all these really common use cases. So they create these templates where they build out routes and they configure it with different integrations up front that you're probably going to need. And so they had one that they put out there right around the same time that I was launching React Miami. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, this is like most of my work is already done. I just have to put my own data in here. And it wasn't truly that simple because it's the virtual event template and we are an in-person event. So there were some things that I had to like take out or add in, but it's a lot better than having to set up all of your data models and structures from scratch around like sponsors and speakers and talks. There were just like a lot of really clever things already thought of. What is the relationship between a speaker and a talk? Or if a talk has multiple speakers, how is that represented and how are those references tied together? And so there was just so many things that I'm like, I don't even have to think about this. It's already figured out. And it's just like a one click thing, right? You're like, I want to use this template. It creates the repo for you in your GitHub. And then it uses a CMS, which we needed, right? And it creates this project in a CMS that's fully templated. And it creates all of the environment variables that you need between your project and the CMS. And, of course, sets up automatic builds and deployments on Vercel. And all of these things are just automatically configured in one or two clicks, maybe. And there's just not anything else that's going to save you that kind of time. That's, like, really hard to
1: compete with. Next, Ben Holmes returns to talk about opt-in design and how it's heralding in the next era of React frameworks. In this clip, he explains what opt-in design is.
3: To break down first off what opt-in design is, I can start from what opt-out was, or yeah, we didn't call it that, but it was how we sort of thought of things, where when you created a new app, if you're coming from the React ecosystem, you leaned on create React app, you client-side rendered everything into a div, and you reached for common libraries in the community like style of components for your styles and React Router in order to have multi-page routing Mm -hmm. in a single-page application. That usually meant there was a base cost of 80 kilobytes for the Hello World in order to have all those libraries set up and ready to go. Mm -hmm. And then as you went on and as you added more features... You would maybe do a performance audit. Maybe you would find problems with that stack. And you would realize, oh, I need to opt out of loading my whole application. I need to lazily code split certain routes and certain portions of it. Those aren't the defaults. Those are things that you need to know about in whatever libraries or ecosystems you have so that you can load those resources later. And you might also realize, ah... If I'm handling all of my form submits with like prevent default and sending things off to the server, I'm dealing with a lot of client-side logic to first prevent the default behavior, then refetch new data So maybe I need to do things like Remix does where you offload to a form action and you put all of your validation now on the server and you keep it a little bit leaner. These are things you need to know about though. So you need to opt out of whatever you're using. Maybe you need to opt out of JavaScript-based styles with style components as well. There are so many areas where we pushed it all to be very dynamic and interactive and we slowly realized the cost of that and tried to scale it backwards. Yeah, And now... I'm at least trying to lean on frameworks like server components and also like Astro that let you opt into that behavior. So instead of starting from let's go ahead and have a client side router and a client side component tree, let's start from render everything with the server side template, whether it's on request or statically generated. You choose that on your back end, but that's where you start. And then as you need to add more features like this, form actually needs client-side validation. You can import Zod into the client, which is a popular validator for objects, Uh and wire up that submit handler yourself. But the default is send it to the server and let the server do it. The opt-in is choosing these libraries. The same goes for interactive components and other things on the page.
1: And finally, Adam Argyle, CSS Guru and CSS and UI Devrel for Google Chrome, returns to talk about CSS nesting and how it's officially supported by the major browsers. Here, Adam explains the evolution of nesting and why developers needed it.
0: Yeah, nesting, we've been doing this in preprocessors for about 10 years. I think it was started by Less or what the desire initially was, well, it's kind of annoying repeating yourself. It's like a developer mantra. We want to be dry. No one wants to be wet. Maybe that's the future. When the pendulum swings the other way, we're going to be like, remember when all of our code was dry and now we're wet? We're so much better now. (laughs) Anyway, dry meaning don't repeat yourself for anyone that hasn't heard that acronym before. And so in the spirit of not wanting to repeat yourself, which is a great goal, there's a lot of benefits that you get from doing that inside of CSS. So in CSS, you have scenarios where you're targeting a button, for example. And you've got things inside of the button. Maybe it's an icon. It could be other bits of text, a span, and different things. And in a button, you also have hover, and active, and focus, and variance, and all of these different things that sort of are all revolving around the base button class. But in traditional CSS, you'd have to repeat your selector over and over again. You'd say dot button dot dark, and you'd write your styles. And that was after you already wrote dot button you open up your curlies, you put your styles, then you have to hit a new line and a whole new selector and you end up with a file largely repeating itself with the word button over and over and over again, references to the pseudo selectors over and over again. And so we've gotten different selector conveniences over time, like we have is and where things that can group things in the middle. That'd be a whole other topic. Although is did totally help unlock nesting for CSS. But some of the benefits are, of course, you're not repeating yourself. So you get to right button once and inside of there you can put your styles as you had but instead of repeating and making a new selector you get to continue the selector from where you are which is really nice so you can say and space or and dot dark and this would create a variant of dot button dot dark and you can write styles inside of there so the browser or the build process whichever it was that you're using at the time will take that dot button and place it where the and is And in some preprocessors, you could omit the AND, but especially in the case of like button here, we wanted button.dark. We wanted the compound selector where they're squished together with no space. And so it would be required to put the AND. The idea there is you're not repeating yourself. You can contain all of the styles. You can co-locate them under one base selector. So all of your focus and your hover states and all of it is inside of there, plus your media queries, which becomes critical because that's another moment where you would have had to traditionally eject out of the scope that you were in, this button scope, this button selector, uh, and go rewrite button inside of a whole new media query and repeat everything all over again. It was super obnoxious, and now you can nest these things directly inside. So besides being dry, besides being convenient, it also makes smaller file sizes. That was one of the original things too for getting it included in the browser, was these build tools would take this convenient authoring style and then explode it into the old syntax, which has a lot of repetition. If We can reduce the repetition, we can reduce the file size, we can ship more CSS for less. That's pretty much the ethos
1: that's it for today, Friday, December 15th. You can check out the full episodes linked in our show notes or on our feed. And if you like what you hear, follow PodRocket for more great web development content. See you at the next roundup. This episode was brought to you by LogRocket. Try it for free at logrocket.com.